When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rat Style Review or Music is Live podcast, depending on where you're watching this show. This is your host, Lou Mavs, and we have Manny Mejias from Rat Style Review on the show with us today. Manny, how you doing? Not bad. How you doing? Doing great. Manny and I are proud to welcome to the show our very special guest. He's one of the preeminent journalists in hard rock and heavy metal. From his days as a writer for Sounds and Kerrang! magazine, he also ran publicity campaigns for many of the classic hard rock and metal bands, from Thin Lizzy to Black Sabbath. Since 1998, he's the editor of Classic Rock magazine and has written many books, including Run to the Hills, the authorized biography of Iron Maiden, Market Square Heroes, the authorized biography of Marillion, and his recent outputs, Rainbow in the Dark, an autobiography on Ronnie James Dio, which I ordered from Premier Collectibles, so it's authenticized, and autographed by Miss Wendy Dio, which is pretty wow. cool. Wow, wow. Ladies and gentlemen, we are pleased to welcome on board from the United Kingdom, Mr. Mick Frickin' Wall. Sir, welcome aboard. How are you? I'm good. What an introduction. Thank you so much. I, I turned the light on because I realized I was kind of hidden in darkness there, as always. But I mean, not <laughs> you know, you, you need to see a little more probably. So anyway, yeah. Anyway, so great to be here. Where, where would you guys uh, like to start? Well, first Lou, of all, I'll let you take it. Thank you, Manny. First of all, we'd like to ask you, how has life been going for you since lockdown started? Well, blimey, how long have you got? Um, same as everybody. <laughs> That's up to you. <laughs> it's a saga, you know. I was actually um, on tour in March 2020 when it, the, the shit hit the fan. I had ghosted the memoir of a guy called Francis Rossi, uh, who doesn't mean really much in anything really in America, but big in Canada and Australia and Germany, places like that. But here in the UK, uh, his group, Status Quo, Status Quo, have had 106 hit singles, 42 hit albums. They were the band that opened Live Aid in London back in 1985. They're an absolute household name here. Anyway, I ghosted his memoir in 2019. Huge hit, number one bestseller. And one year later, the paperback came out. And we were doing a big book, uh, book tour and we were four shows into a 56 show tour. And you know what I'm going to say. The bug arrived and Britain went into, I don't, I don't know what the timeline was in the USA, but here the uh, end of March, last week of March, the whole country went into the most awful lockdown. And I was in trouble because that 11 week tour was going to set me up financially so I didn't have to worry for the rest of the year, uh, even though I'd be working. And, of course, that went, and suddenly it, it reminded me, I was, when I was a kid, I remember I was going to an outdoor swimming pool when I was about seven, and one of my friends pushing me in the deep end, and I, I couldn't yet swim. Man, I shot out of that pool like a rocket. The hands, the legs, it was just an instinctive thing. I'm thrown in. I practically flew out of the pool. And it was a bit like that with lockdown. I mean, I was in trouble. And what can I do from home? I can write books. So since then, I've written four books. One is a ghosted memoir of Doc McGee. 
famously Kiss's manager these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the past, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Scorpion, Skid Row. Then you get to Diana Ross, James Brown, Mink DeVille. Oh, my God. Hootie and the Blowfish. I mean, you know, forever. And also, of course, famously convicted for smuggling, you know, hundreds of tons of marijuana into the U.S. Convicted, um, not alleged, ladies and gentlemen. It's a fact. Look it up. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and he, he uh, makes absolutely no bones about it. But great fun part of the book is him talking you through it. Meetings with Noriega. I mean, come on. Um, I didn't know got that funny. detail. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. He's like half Irish, half Italian. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so that was good. I'd, that had be, been begun the previous summer 2019. I'd spent a lot of time with Doc in LA and Nashville and, and Miami and lots of other places. And it's an incredible book. The, the deal we did is that Doc chooses when it comes out. Because back in 2019, there was talk of, a, well, it's still happening. There's going to be a documentary based around the book. There was whispers of maybe a Netflix series or a movie or blah, 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 blah. But that's all in Doc's hands. And, of course, once this COVID thing happened, all those plans got backburnered. So that will happen hopefully next year. But that's one of the most fun, crazy, outrageous stories I've ever worked on. He is a fantastic fantastic guy to sit down with uh but i also um did the ronnie james dio memoir uh again that there it is i mean that was begun in terms of research and so forth again back in 2019 towards the end of 2019 i was over in la at wendy's house and going through this unbelievable archive she has i mean it's like an aladdin's cave you know she's She's got the trumpet that Ronnie played when he was just a little boy and pictures of him as a small child and books and, oh, my God, Uh, and lots and lots of interviews. So that was begun then. And, and of course, by the time the lockdown hit, I think I had actually already begun writing it, but that got accelerated real fast because there was nothing else to do. So it kind of worked well, but it took a while. And that book, as you know, came out just a few months ago. Uh, I also did a... I've been... Just finished working with a guy called Stephen Wilson. Um, From Porcupine Yes, yes, yes. He's got a big, big solo career here these days. Although he has, while we were doing the book uh, this last year and this year via Zoom, he's recorded the first Porcupine Tree album for, I think, 11 or 12 years. Uh, That's going to come out next year. He's finishing. His solo album came out this year. I think it went to like number three in the charts. We were were into our third lockdown at that moment. So it all just turns into mist, doesn't it? But he's doing his new solo album. That was an amazing thing to do because he'd always, he'd been approached for years to do a book and always said no. He didn't want to do, I was born and then this happened and then that happened. He wanted to do something more like his music. He wanted to do something more experimental. So it's not uh, chronological. Page one of the book, I think, begins at the final Porcupine Tree show at the Albert Hall in London in 2010. Anyway, for me, it's one of the best things I've ever worked on. It was a genuine collaboration. He wrote some of it. It wasn't just me having to do all the the heavy lifting and, and then put the words down in his voice. He was uh, shoulder to shoulder with me. Extraordinary. That comes out in March. And I could probably be here all day telling you the stuff. And now you're sorry you asked. So there's <laughs> other stuff. There's other stuff. Uh, but but where do you want to go next? My first introduction to you was on the VH1 show Behind the Music, where you were interviewed 
on artists such as Ozzy Osbourne and Def Leppard. We actually just had Lorelai Shellis and Helen Collin on the network uh, last month, and they were wonderful. So, wow. what, what's Lorelai doing these days? Happily married, living in California, and Helen and and Phil and Lorelai and her husband Larry are great friends. And oh, good, you know, good. I'm keep in touch with both Lorelai and Helen. Wonderful women on YouTube. There's also classic footage of you from the Monsters of Rock TV show where you've practically interviewed everyone from the world of rock and metal that ever meant anything to fans, including and, and, quite a few that, and quite a few that didn't. Well, that's also part of the gig. You interviewed Mama's Boys, which is one of my all-time favorites. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Mama's Boys? Oh, my God. Dude, <laughs> wow. Power and Passion is one of the greatest albums ever from the 80s. And well, if what you're I remember from them is they did a cover of Slade's Come On, Feel the Noise, but I thought they were covering a Quiet Riot song because I hadn't heard of Slade right. yet. Correction, it was Mama, We're All Crazy Now. Right. They did, you know what's a better cover than that? Their cover of Sham 69's If the Kids Are United. So oh, wow. I, I thought that was better than the Sham 69. Thank it you. So, <laughs> it wasn't so that Cockney London thing, which which you either love or hate, you know. Mama's Boys right. did a great version, rocked its ass off. Oh, yeah. The singer of Mama's Boys, um, God, I can't remember his name. Uh, John McManus. Yes, John. I bumped into John for the first time in at least 30 years. The very last time I was in Los Angeles, which was sort of February 2020. He hasn't changed one bit. That, that, that guy must have a painting in an attic somewhere that's just dripping flesh and blood and stuff. Because he looks the same as he did 30 years ago. It's kind of sickening, you know. He might but be a descendant lovely, of Elizabeth Bathory, but we can't prove that. <laughs> <laughs> with the interviews that you did for Behind the Music and your show Monsters of Rock that was on TV in the 80s, with the constant interviewing of bands that were on the rise, bands that had already been established, was this something that just came naturally for you? Or did you kind of feel the pressure of like, okay, we're onto something kind of big that's hot at the moment? Not really. I became a published music journalist when I was 19. And that was back in October 1977. I first started doing the Monsters of Rock show on Sky TV, at Rupert Murdoch's station. Back in 1985, I was 28, 27, sorry, 26 coming up to 27. So that was seven or eight years. I'd already been in the biz. Uh, I'd written for Sounds, uh, left and come back a couple of years later. I've been writing for Kerrang! for a couple of years. But I'd written for a lot of other magazines and newspapers. But more crucially, I went to work for a, a publicity company called Heavy Publicity. And I, and I left Sounds to do that when I was about 20. And Heavy Publicity did Sabbath when Ozzy was in the band. Uh, so we inherited Dio being in the band. Uh, Sabbath, Tin Lizzie, Ario Speedwagon, Dire Straits, Styx, Ted Nugent, Journey, Rush, and also groups like Ultravox and The Damned and some other stuff. But it was called Heavy Publicity. And it was heavy. <laughs> And um, I had to get to know all the artists. And it wasn't like going in to interview them. And it's, if it's someone who, whose music you like, it's a buzz, you know. But that isn't always the case, you know. Uh, you, you don't get straight in to meet your all-time hero with your first interview. But when I became their publicist, you're not in that room for an hour or two hours or on the road for a day or two days or three days. 
you're there all the time and shit gets real. So by the time I got to the Monsters of Rock in 1985, wheeling on rock stars, I used to sit there and take the piss. I mean, I used to, if they weren't funny or interesting, I'd get them off again really quick. I did always take it seriously, but I wasn't in the remotest bit awed. You know, I, I mean, I was older than a lot of them. You know, I'm older than Def Leppard, you know. Uh, but the ones that got it, like Joe Elliott, funnily enough, he came on a fair bit and it was hilarious. I'd have Bruce Dickinson on, who I'm exactly the same age as, when he was Bruce Dickinson. He would guest for me when I went on vacation. They just were people I knew. Now, if it had been, I mean, I had Jimmy Page on the show. That was a little bit different. That was exciting. But by the time he came on the show, we'd already met a few times. So again, if you look at the clip, I'm making fun with him. And so now I found it very, very easy. The more I did it, the easier it got. I got a bit too relaxed sometimes. I mean, we had Vow Wow, you know, the Japanese group on? Yeah, Nightless Cities. I remember that. They, you know, that, and they were a good band, you know. Yeah, they're like a deep purple of Japan, in my opinion. With very an Ingve type of guitarist, I remember. Anyway. Oh, they love Blackmore and Ingve in Japan. So they come, they come, they're on the they're guests on the show. And uh, we show a video, and more chat, and then a video. And then it's uh, thank you and bye. They've gone while the video's playing. And you know, I've said thank you, goodbye, and they put the video on. And we come back, and it's all live. And I go, oh, what a video. What a band. Big thanks to Loudness. <laughs> for coming on today one of the you didn't <laughs> fucking did and didn't even know i'd done it i could see like you know when you see people behind the cameras they're like yeah you know, like i'm thinking what the fuck's wrong with them yeah why uh, loudness still hanging around you know and uh, <laughs> and so it came to the end because they're very polite and there's a bit of whispering and bowing and you know and the yeah. producer comes up to me and goes fiery Irish woman and she goes you fucking idiot that's not fucking loudness fuck. I said well who is it then she goes it's fucking Val Wow I'm, oh, you're kind of that's what I said you didn't fucking say that. you said loudness you know? I said what are we going to do she said we're going to have to reshoot that bit and, and, and I went oh fucking hell I said well can you at least put them back in the dressing room she said they're being pretty good about it I think we'll just leave them alone so we shot the whole thing <laughs> I said, oh, one of the greatest bands out of Japan. One of my favorites. My thanks to Bow Wow. Great guys. Hope to see them again soon. So, yeah. So a little too relaxed sometimes. <laughs> uh, but no, no, I, I, I really did enjoy it. It was terrible. I, I hated it the first year or so because I was no good at it. And then I literally, they were having a three-week break, and I brought in a resignation letter because I thought three weeks will give them a chance to get someone else. And this is in the days when cable and satellite TV in the UK is, it's, it's fuck all, you know, it's, it's not like say, you know, I'm on, uh, I'm on uh, NBC with the nightly talk show. You know, it's not the tonight show. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Three weeks mm -hmm. to get poor sap in to do it. You know? And that was the first time I enjoyed it. It was really funny. I think because I knew I, it was my last and I was leaving. I would never have to do it again. And it was fun. And I was walking back to the tube station and I realised I still had the letter in my back pocket. And I nearly turned round to go back and go, oh, and I went, three, three week break coming up. I went, ah, fuck it, I'll give, it a, I'll give it to them next time. See how it goes next. And I carried that letter in my pocket for about six weeks. I used to wear the same jeans. And um, I didn't give it in. 
from that moment on, I started to enjoy it, and I think the viewers enjoyed it more as well. Do you know when the when Sky went mainstream in the UK in '89, and they suddenly had MTV on 24-7. They only made six music shows and, and mine was one of them. And so they just cancelled them. Uh, well, when I first started on Sky, the most popular show on the channel was Mr. Ed the Talking Horse. Okay? There was, <laughs> was Mr. Ed the Talking Horse, Topless Darts, The Monsters of Rock Show, and, you know, some pop shit generic crap. The chart show, when we got cancelled three and a half years later, no email in those days, okay? And we used to get, we didn't just get like postcards or letters, you know, we'd get these burned at the edges, posters and crosses and all this stuff. We used to have a thing called Rogue's Gallery, which we'd put them all up in for the show. Uh, they got over 5,000 of these protesting that the show was going off air. And i got to tell you, even in those days when there was no email, 5,000 for a tiny cable show. The next most popular music show got six, uh, and that was the chart show. So um, it didn't mean much in terms of money, but the fact that uh, you could tell the audience loved the humour. You know, they say, you know, if you want to hear a great Irish joke, get an Irish guy to tell it. You want to hear a great Jewish Go, joke get a great i mean just get it there's so many get a great jewish comedian to tell you that joke you're gonna laugh like you never laughed before same with italian whatever whatever um and i felt like that with heavy metal you know they i really loved the stuff i loved the spirit um it was so non-80s and it was so not english and fucked up and weird you know it was expansive heartfelt Fucking funny, dirty, naughty, uh, X-rated, some of it. Yeah, that to me was what rock and roll was always meant to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and clearly lots of pe young people feel like that. Of course they do. So I think they liked the show. It wasn't always dependent on what videos we played. And I was rubbish. Uh, we had a rival on Music Box, the other music channel, called The Power Hour. And that was presented by Dante Benuto. Uh, a friend and a colleague on Kerrang. But his show was always about, he used to talk like this. And he would say, uh, I have the Man of War tour dates. And he'd start reading them out. You know what I mean? Um, this is their eighth album and a live double recorded earlier this year in Tokyo. It's excellent. So... <laughs> So, so that was Walter Cronkite with a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love Dante. We're still friends all these years later, but that's how he talks. And that's how his mind works. Um, I, I would rarely talk about the music. Had no fucking idea about the tour dates. Didn't fucking care. We just had fun. fun. How can you play a David Lee Roth video followed by... Uh, even Bon Jovi, who were so vanilla, you know, but even they were funny. Uh, Poison, you know. Uh, Motorhead, Man of War, ACDC. I mean, Dio, for fuck's sake. You killer, killer, killer. And even when it's not, you know, like Wasp, funny. Uh, 
Val Wow posing as loudness. Funny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so no, I found it very easy once I gave up trying. I think that's been the key to my success. Don't try. Just Mick, have fun uh, doing it. Sorry, man, I, uh, go ahead. Uh, Mick, I discovered you through Kerrang! Magazine as imports as a, as a kid. Uh, matter of fact, you and a guy named Malcolm Dome were the first journalists that seem to take heavy metal hard rock serious at least in in my world yeah agreed rest in peace malcolm uh, the magazines i read and i don't you're probably not familiar with them hit parader which we used to call shit parader circus and the they, uh the kids you know kids but you guys are the first to take it seriously i mean nowadays everyone loves black sabbath led zeppelin alice cooper but if that wasn't that way when i was a kid magazine like rolling stone uh spin in the in the 80s began anyway all these critics hated them and you two and the rest of your writers are the first ones that i know took the music seriously even led zeppelin who's now loved and your book points out that you wrote years ago weren't so loved when they came out people forget mm. that so. definitely not i mean none of those bands got a, a good time first time around certainly not in the 80s when it was the most unfashionable look sound yeah. right post punk and reagan and thatcher and shoulders and manicured hair you know it just wasn't what that world is about um they get a lot better press now but you're right you know, i'll tell you a story about malcolm because bless his heart he, he did die you know some weeks ago broke my heart um he hadn't been well for a long time so i can't say it was a huge surprise but it was a shock um, I met Malcolm. I have the dubious honour of kind of um, paving the way somewhat for Malcolm. Uh, back in 1980, I'm going to say 1980, heavy publicity, uh, I was the press agent for Hawkwind. I don't know if you are familiar with Hawkwind. Lemmy's yeah. original band, yeah. Yeah, the Grateful Dead of, uh, of England. Spot on. We know. Spot on. Yeah. Lemmy used to say to me... Um, you know, Pink Floyd were like a spaceship and they just, you know, traveled the galaxies and were amazing. And he said, Hawkwind was like a broken down spaceship. We just fucking crash landed onto your planet and fuck knows, you know. So, um, so I'm doing their press. And in, in those days in the UK, there were four weekly music magazines. Sounds, Melody Maker, Record Mirror, uh, NME, New Musical Express. No Kerrang! yet. And NME um, wouldn't touch Hawkwind at that point. You know, it wouldn't go near them. Um, Melody Maker, eh, they're not Queen, they're not Zeppelin, we don't care. Um, sounds, yes, Sounds were solid because they were really rootsy. They were writing about Kiss and ACDC and uh, they, were, they were fine. But Record Mirror, we didn't even bother with because they were, a, 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 it was all paper in those days. But like Rolling Stone, the cover paper was colour. But it was pop stuff. It was, you know, uh, boy, you know, David Cassidy, not, not in 1980, but, you know, Donny Osmond. Kids, what were they called? The, um, you know, in the 80s in, uh, in America. Tiger Beat you can, and stuff like that. There you go. So you didn't even bother talking to them about Hawkwind. Are you fucking kidding? And then Alf Martin, their editor, rang me one day and said, uh, you guys are doing Hawkwind. I went, yeah. He said, it's just that we've got this new guy who I want to come in and write about heavy metal for us. 
I'm like, what? Didn't make any sense, but I'm like, fantastic. The new wave of British heavy metal was starting to boom. And I think Record Mirror wanted a piece of it. So they sent, he said, his name is Malcolm Dunn. I said, it'd be his first interview. I said, fine, bring him over, man. He's great. Now, heavy publicity in 1980. Yeah, it really, I know people, oh, it was a different world, you know. It was a different world. Cocaine was like champagne, you know. Weed was like offering a cup of tea, you know. Um, that, we, we used to build the bands for the drugs under the heading champagne and flowers for the band. But if we turned up at the show or at a meeting or a studio or whatever, we didn't have coke. Oh, boo, boo. What are those guys doing? So coke was just the thing. It was the, the fucking 70s and 1980 or whatever it was. So, this guy, so we used to show people a good time. That was how we used to get favourable press for our bands. We would sometimes sellotape grams of cocaine in, you know, that you pull out the sleeve of the records in the paper and sell it, tape it. You don't call it sellotape, but, you know, sticky tape. And he said. Uh, so uh, we're ready to rock. This is the, the new heavy metal writer on Record Mirror. It was like a fucking unicorn coming to the office. So we're going to take fucking good care of this guy. In walks Malcolm Dome. Malcolm Dome circa... 1980 when he's still i think like a senior editor on a science journal and he's got the yaml car and um it's just the most he's a big bowl of jewish and he's absolutely delightful and we totally misread the tone because the minute he comes in we're going hey man hey man have some coke yeah chuck he's quite tight man come on yeah and malcolm's like oh no thank you no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. We hadn't heard no thank you since 1973, you know. We went, okay, man. So I'm sure we had a few rolled already. Someone probably just, oh, no, no, thank you. No, thank you. Okay, so he was so straight edge pretty much then. 100%. We couldn't get him to drink a thing. But this is not computing. We don't feel someone is okay unless we've, 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 smothered them in hospitality i said well what are you into there must be something i just would like to make you feel at home you know what he said donuts i like donuts it, i'm thinking is, is he actually fucking with my mind <laughs> but we send the secretary out uh, and of course because we're so excessive we can't like, she brings back a tray of like 12 different you know, flavors and kinds, you know, and we're like, there's your fucking donuts, rock and roll, you know, and he went, just that one. Well, <laughs> so, so he was very strong. He was a lovely, lovely guy. And to concertina this, um, there was a very small, what, what they called a poster magazine would fold out into a poster called um, Metal Fury. Mm-hmm. I was the editor, writer, secretary, make the coffee guy. And I just needed a little bit of help. You only needed three or four stories a month and some reviews and just a little bit of hustling. And I called Malcolm. And uh, by then, the Record Mirror gig had had ended for whatever reason. I guess the new wave of British heavy metal had petered out a bit. And um, he came in and was fantastic. So much energy. 
would work for nothing if he had to. Um, and then I left that and he took over as the editor, writer, tea guy, you know. Cut to a couple years later and I need a gig. And I know he's on Kerrang! And I've known about Kerrang! for a couple years. It's on my radar. In fact, I was in Kerrang! People talk about the birth of Kerrang! Have you heard the story of the actual birth of the word Kerrang! Uh, because it wasn't issue one or the pre-issue one or the original colour spread that appeared in sounds with the headline Kerrang! Here's how it came about. In like 78 um you had punk reggae uh metal um soul whatever and there were these little factions in sounds that that was the reggae guy that was the jeff barton was the kiss guy you know and um actually this is this is the early 80s after i'd left heavy publicity i'm back at sounds and there was gary bushel who used to write about like Sham 69 type stuff. We used to call it oi oi. So Bridgeboard mm-hmm. would put calls through and it wasn't coordinated in those days. A phone would ring on, could be anybody's desk and you picked it up. And we just for fun, without even thinking, developed a shorthand. So if Gary took the call, he'd be oi oi. You'd know you were talking to Gary. And, you, and, and if you spoke to Eric Fuller, this really posh guy, boarding school, money, posh guy, but really into reggae, white guy if you if he picked up the phone he'd go bump bump a diddly and you knew you yeah not even a good bob marley bump bump a diddly couldn't you just say i read that would have gotten the point across <laughs> <laughs> then uh there was jeff barton and me or well, first it was jeff and pete mikowski then pete mikowski left and i sort of became his replacement not not specifically or deliberately but just happened that way and um when we picked up the phone we would go crang or sometimes dang or bang or if you're tired yang you know you mm-hmm. go Nick. yeah so that's how it came about and when we did jeff and i planned the first ever color feature as a center folding sounds um which i bailed out of to join heavy publicity so it was the late sunday Anyway, um, no, I was thinking of the new wave of British heavy metal. No, Kerrang! was like 80, 81. Yes, yeah, so I had. Um, I just said, you know what, you should call it. And he said, I'm way ahead of you. Kerrang! I went, yeah. I didn't think he'd go for it. It seemed like a stupid name. But we only ever thought there'd be like one issue or two, you know, two. But um, so that's how that started. Anyway, so Malcolm's now working at Kerrang! in 83. And I needed a gig and I call him and he's so lovely. They don't actually need anyone. I'm, I'm a bit of a has been at this point, uh, but he's like, yep, yep. No, well, if, if you have any good ideas, you know, actually. And I said, well, what, what, anything you're particularly looking for at the moment? And he said, they, this is 90125 album had just come out. They couldn't get an interview. And I knew Trevor Abin because Trevor had produced one of the records of one of the bands I'd worked with at Heavy. And, of course, we'd, shh, shh, yeah. Um, so, I, long story short, I got hold of Trevor, and I interviewed him. Uh, and that was the first story I ever had printed in Kerrang! And everything kind of went from there. But that was Malcolm. 
so it's it's and and as the years went by radio and other magazines we um uh our paths really interfaced for a long time but he was one of the most extraordinary uh, people as well as rock or metal writers ever he had an encyclopedic knowledge about metal i was once in los angeles this has got to be late 80s 89 90 and i'm sitting around a pool with malcolm and bo hill the guy that used to produce the produce rat the rat album. albums yep I think Winger maybe and some others. And uh, I've got a copy of Billboard. And just because we're bored, I'm going through the Hot 100 and just throwing names out. And Malcolm, it was like it was like it was like Wikipedia. It was Malcolmpedia before there was Wikipedia. He just reeled it off. He knew the producer, the label, the history. And Bo Hill is sitting there who knew him well. He said, "Malcolm, you're." Why aren't you an A&R guy? Why are you wasting your time writing about this stuff when you know more about the business and the bands? You know, some of these records you're telling us about, I don't even know what they are. <laughs> Malcolm, so not interested. He was not interested. He just wanted to work with the musicians and write about music. And he didn't want to kind of be that grown up in the room, even though, um, you know, he was... Uh, uh, he was quite a, you know, had quite great standing. He really did. He was very loved by everybody. I've always appreciated his enthusiasm for the bands that he spoke and wrote about. So, yes, I agree with you. We're currently wrapping up part one of our interview with Mick Wall, but Mick has been kind enough and gracious enough to say that he had a great time with me and Manny, and he's going to come back around for a part two. And we're hoping to have Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle, the other hosts from Ratsai Review on board. And I just want to say, uh, Mick, it's been great, this first introduction between you and I. I'm very grateful that we had this, and I'm looking forward to a round two where we'll have the entire Ratsai Review gang. Well, I, listen, I'm delighted to be here, Lou. Uh, it's taken too long, but like I say, I, I'm like Dracula. Now you've invited me in, you know, it's going to be carnage, and you just won't get rid of me. Well, as long as as long as the dams in the background playing the song nasty, I'll be happy. Yes, I'm a young one fans, too. Don't forget, buy his book, Rainbow in the Dark, the authorized biography of Ronnie James Dio, co-written by Wendy Dio and by Mick Wall. Get it. It is out now. And it's a great read. Mick, any website you want to throw out? Uh, My Patreon site is where a lot of great stuff is going on at the moment. Pods, articles, videos, uh, merch, pictures. A lot of great writing that isn't published anywhere else and some pods that aren't published anywhere else. There is the Mick Wall podcast, which goes out every week for free on Spotify, Apple, Acast, all that stuff. Um, and my official Facebook page, my name with that tick. All links in the description below. Mick Wall, good sir. Thank you so much for uh, stopping by Routside Review Network and Music is Live podcast. It's a pleasure. All the best to you. Wishing you a very happy Christmas. And I'll see you again soon, I hope. Definitely. And remember, all art is valid. RatsiReview.com, musicislivepodcast.com. Mick, have a great night, and thanks for tuning in, everyone. Take care.